Do you think depression is funny? I think it's funny in the way that death is funny, in that it's not, but you cope with it by laughing. Doc says there's something wrong with me I've got a sadness I can't shake now Is there something I can't take now Hey, it's John Moe. For the vast majority of my life, I've had these two companions, comedy and depression, a passion for people and things that inspire laughter, and a sense of joyless despair. It's quite a team. Sounds like a really horrible cop show, really. As a young kid, I absorbed all the comedy I could. Steve Martin and Richard Pryor albums, Monty Python, The Carol Burnett Show, George Carlin, early Saturday Night Live. It was bold and fearless. I couldn't believe it. It wasn't just that it was funny, which it was. It was the power of this comedy to reshape the world. Belushi as a samurai in a deli. John Cleese at a desk in a field saying, and now for something completely different. These people, prior observing, surviving to observe, that when you are on fire and running down the street, people will get out of your way. Sharing that as wisdom, I inhaled comedy. Somewhere around junior high, depression came calling. Some kind of puberty trigger, I guess, but it hit like a truck. I was in despair, couldn't even really think. And I was terrified because... I thought I had gone insane, and that meant being locked up or even just having to stay that way forever. I would retreat to Doonesbury Books, wait for Three's Company or WKRP to come on. I endured, and I moved forward, grew up, coped, had relapses, but had kind of accepted that I was just a weirdo and would have to live with that. I ended up doing a lot of work in comedy or in jobs where I found or installed comedy. It was well into adulthood that a doctor said that I was depressed. I had a disease, a condition. Here are a bunch of ways we could try to address it, he said. And I have, and it's mostly worked. I've been open about having this disease for a few years now, but I was very scared to talk about it in public prior to that because I didn't know how it would go over. Well, it went over great, it turns out, and people rushed to me online and in person to share their own stories of their struggles. It was remarkable because we live in a society where depression and people with it are often silenced, even shamed. People with depression are told to cheer up, snap out of it, go for a walk. Suggestions you wouldn't make to someone with a different disease like, you know, leukemia. We cover depression up, and by doing so, we make it worse. We cover up the results of depression. People die of it. Fatal cases of this disease. That's suicide. But often when suicides happen, it's reported that the person died suddenly at home. And people understand, and they don't talk about it, they don't ask questions, and then others are taught that it's shameful and you should stay quiet. Look, depression wants you to stay quiet and alone and ashamed. That way it can fester. Diseases love to fester. Now, over the years, 
I've gotten to know and work with a lot of comedians, comedy writers, people who traffic in humor for a living, and a whole lot of them have battled depression in their lives. And I noticed that these folks have a real knack for talking about the disease in a way that is relatable and even enjoyable. They can make you feel less alone and give you a laugh where you don't expect it. This is The Hilarious World of Depression, a show about clinical depression as told through the lens of comedy and comedians. If you haven't dealt with it, someone you know almost certainly has, a family member, friend, neighbor, coworker. This program is not a cure for depression or a treatment. I am not a doctor. It's just a chance to hang out with people who understand. A while back, I was in Chicago at this party, and I ran into my friend Peter Sagal. He's a writer and public radio host. You might know him from the NPR quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Give us a call. The number, one wait wait That's one 888 Let's welcome our first listener contestant. Hi, you're on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Hi, this is Sarah Birchfield from Long Beach, California. So from Long Beach. I once lived in Long Beach. Now, what do you do there? Um, I'm a marriage and family therapist. Oh, you are? I am. And how, how's that going? Uh, good. Good. Let, let me ask you quick. A little late for me. Is there, is there a single <laughs> secret to saving a troubled marriage? <laughs> <laughs> Peter had heard about this very podcast, which I was then just getting off the ground. He pulled me aside to say that he wanted in. He wanted to tell his story, share his experiences with depression. Now, I've known Peter for years, and I never knew this about him because I'd fallen into that very, very old trap. Peter's funny. He is pure energy. He runs marathons. He's the host of a huge hit radio show. Surely he's not depressed. I forgot once again that that is not how depression works. It's not just for mopey people listening to the Smiths. Depression doesn't care what you're doing or who you are. It gets you anyway. A few weeks later, I went back to Chicago to talk to Peter and find out what's going on. Hi, my name is uh, Peter. Should is, is this like, do I have to say my last name? Or I think so. Anonymous? Oh, yeah, gosh. Okay. So. I've never done anything like this. My name is Peter Sagel, and uh, I host Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me for uh, NPR. And where are we right now? We are in a studio in the beautiful uh, confines, the friendly confines of WBEZ in Chicago, here on Lake Michigan. And this is the first time you've talked about yes. depression into a this microphone. This is the very first time I have almost I've talked about it other, other than with mental health professionals. Yeah. So, but but none of them have diagnosed you. None of them said you're depressed. Uh, none of them have ever said to me, "You are clinically depressed, and you have been so your whole life." Um, that is a conclusion that I had to come to myself. And, and this and why that is the case has to do with the events of my life for the past four or five years. Peter Sagal has been hosting Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR quiz show, for 18 years. He's not a stand-up comedian, but he's been working in comedy forever. His background is as a playwright, and before that, an actor, and before all of that, a boy with a strong interest in theater. I was one of those awkward kids who wasn't as comfortable as myself as I was pretending to be somebody else, which generally was only allowed um, when you were doing a play. I, I never, I mean, I, when I saw uh, the movie uh, Catch Me If You Can, in which Leonardo DiCaprio plays a young man who constantly pretends to be other people, I said, I wish I had thought of that, but <laughs> limits of my imagination, I simply did school plays. Uh, why did you, 
Why did you want to be other people? Oh well, I I don't know. I mean, take a look. No, I mean, I I, I was I, I was a kid, and I guess this gets around to the the subject of what we're talking about. Yeah. Who did, was not particularly comfortable either in my skin or in anybody else's. I, the, the world always seemed very. It, it, this is something that I think remains true to this day, and I think you'll find this of true of anybody who is in our business of comedy, especially is 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 that getting along in social situations took a kind of effort. For, I, I've always been envious of the people who are sort of effortlessly social and e- at ease with other people no matter who they are. And that's something I've been working for my whole life. But certainly in high school, I was very bad at it. And so performing, being funny, um, writing things seemed to be a way of managing my place in the world. Did it seem at at that age that, oh, I've got a I've got a mental condition that could be addressed and <laughs> no. be made better. No, and and that this is something that I um, that I have thought about a lot recently. In that, at no point ever, ever uh, in my life did my parents or any other um, person, any other person of authority, or myself ever say. You seem to have a, a kind of a problem. You seem to have, you seem to like have difficulty getting along, or you're sad some of the times, or you know you just come home and you sit in your room and where are your friends and so on and so forth. And 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 partially that was because I was a very high functioning guy as a kid. In the words of my mother, I was very bright, so I was able. I got good grades. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always, especially once I got to high school. Uh, deeply involved in all these extracurricular activities. I was like, you know, on this and I was on that. And I ran, even ran track one year, which I find hard to believe. Um, I ran cross country technically. And uh, so therefore, if anybody looking at me and looking at my resume, as it were, they saw no problem. And so you probably thought no problem too. Like exactly. this is the way people ought to be. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, how do you manage your day? How do you manage getting through your day? Well, you do these things and people are impressed with these things, usually teachers and authority figures rather than my peers. Um, but, and that's, and that's, and that's, that's social success, right? Isn't that what you're supposed to do, mm-hmm. I guess? Yeah. Now, I also want to say, I don't want to paint too dark a picture. I was not the most socially adept kid in high school, no question. But I had friends, and I had friends who I was very, very fond of and on whose, in whose company I, I found a great pleasure and comfort. So I don't, want to, I, I don't want to paint the picture over much that I was this sort of lonely, sad person who, who never had anyone to talk to but my imaginary friend and my journals in which I pledged vengeance on all. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> but, you know. Yeah, you considered vengeance on all. I considered uh, vengeance. Pledging is, is too strong yeah, a I term. Know. I mean, yeah. I, I, I considered it as one of my many options, you know. <laughs> Vast wealth, a huge success, fame, vengeance and destruction upon those who have hurt me. Those were all on my list. So Peter kept busy. Remember that. Put a pin in it. Remember it for later in this interview. He masked his depression to varying degrees of success by achieving. Went to Harvard, successful theater director and playwright with plays produced all over the country, which is a very, very difficult thing to do. He appeared on Jeopardy and came in second, which is not last. In 1997, he was asked to appear as a panelist on a new show on NPR because getting a playwright was the NPR version of booking someone famous and witty. The show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, was not going well. We were trying to launch this show. People were tuning in. People were not liking it. People were sending very, 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 very unpleasant emails to various people in the system. 
And so there was a desperation move before we went the way of, of many good shows, which is that Doug Berman, perhaps the most desperate uh, thing he'd ever done in his life is he asked me if I wanted to try being host. And that would mean a move to Chicago for Peter and his wife. The, the circumstances were such that we didn't need to make a move. My wife was not a big fan of New York and had agreed only... This always struck me as something out of like a Grimm's fairy tale. She would live in New York until the first birthday of our first child. <laughs> and then presumably Rumpelstiltskin would come and move it to the suburbs. Um, but no, the, we didn't know where to go. She was from the Midwest. She was, grew up in Minneapolis, in fact, Red, okay. a daughter of Red Wing. Right. She wanted to move back to Minneapolis where we had met. I did not want to do that. Hmm. Um, but here came a job offer in Chicago, which you may know. It's a large city here in the Midwest. So they move. The show becomes a hit. And they have three daughters. And then after many years things begin to collapse in the marriage, which is something that happens sometimes in marriages. So that was really, really hard. And in the last few years of it, it got very, very, very difficult. And I think I sought out my first help when I really, I found myself, well, actually, that's not true. I sought out a lot of help in the course of the marriage, both to um, help me deal with the difficulties that I couldn't seem to handle. Why are we having so many fights? Is there a way that I can stop having fights with my wife? Is there a way can I conduct myself? We tried marriage counseling. Um, But also eventually to deal with the fact that it was so incredibly difficult to deal with, that it was just, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what you, let me, let me say this. When you find yourself loath to go home, you have a problem. And that's the problem I had. So I sought out help. Peter got on antidepressants at that point as things went further south. Now, when it comes to divorce, there aren't even just two sides. There are a billion sides, and we aren't going to attempt to tell all of them, and none of them are what we're really here to talk about. We're here to talk about the effects of a major life disaster on our subject, Peter Sagal, someone with a history of depression, but a record of mostly keeping it at bay. Peter hesitated to describe what happened next. I want to be very careful for a couple of reasons, but mainly I do not want to be the guy who says, oh, that crazy, whatever, you wouldn't believe how terrible she was. That wasn't, you know, I'm not going to go there. It was a hard marriage. It takes two people to make a hard marriage. I was one of them. Finally, in their marriage, no solution could be reached. More in a minute. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illness, not just depression, but all kinds of mental illness. We enjoy having some laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, maybe knocking down the power of depression a little bit. But let's not kid ourselves. It's a serious disease. The good news is that people can and do recover. They can get help. That's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. It could be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use, like what to say, what not to say. And it has stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, or other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org. You can take the pledge right there to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Talking to Peter Sagal from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. His marriage had fallen apart and the moment had come for the divorce. And then... 
to paraphrase President Lincoln, the war came. Mm. And um, it, how best to describe this? Uh, it became a living nightmare. The divorce was not smooth, not amicable. And he says that in the midst of it, he was told his daughters didn't want to speak to him again. Contact was cut off. Peter had been in a family, a unit that gives you strength and stability. And then he wasn't anymore. So he kind of had to figure out what to do next. And the whole situation was getting worse and worse. Now, one of the things depression does is it severely hampers your ability to deal with adversity. Any form of bad fortune can kick a depressed person's ass. A parking ticket sends you spiraling into shame and worry. I'm a terrible person. I'm irresponsible. Everyone hates me. I break the law. Even though it's a parking ticket, man. Come on. So here's Peter, a person with depression, however mild and under control it had been to that point. And he's predisposed to making a big deal out of nothing. And then here comes something. There's something very transformative about a transformative event. Um, you know, so you start, you think to yourself, well, what did I do to get myself in this? He says he replayed conversations he had had with his family, looked for what he did that was wrong, like an athlete watching game film. He decided that anger only seemed to lead to more anger. So, okay, you have to find a kind of calm and you have to find a kind of measure and a kind of like place of balance that I never sort of particularly needed to seek out before. Hmm. Um, and it also makes the other problems I've had seem really minor. I don't care anymore if I meet a person at a party and I say, make a joke and he doesn't laugh. And I, I no longer, you know, yeah. sit around and worry about that. I no longer sit around and worry about the fact that uh, Ira Glass doesn't have me on a regular basis as a guest for in This American Life. It just doesn't bother me anymore. It used to. God, what, does he not like me? Does he not think I'm witty and thoughtful and can talk in sort of modulated tones about my childhood? I, I don't care, you know, because it doesn't matter. And, and I, I see all of the things that I used to obsess about and worry about my place on hierarchies, the number of feathers I had accumulated in my cap from day to day is utterly meaningless, completely meaningless and not worth worrying about because I got something really serious I need to worry about. It almost sounds like, have you ever, I don't know if you've been in car accidents, but there's this moment, I've been in a few, there's this moment where you know it's either about to happen or is happening yes. or has just happened and an almost feeling of serenity comes around yeah, where, there's nothing where you're able you can to do. focus on everything that's happening yes. and make calm decisions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's really, in fact, I think about that a lot. Um, in fact, because I got hit right before this began, it's like two years before this began, I was hit by a car and my bicycle. And it's exactly that. There's this moment. It's like, to, to use a science fiction geek term, you've just passed the event horizon. You yeah. can't go back. Yeah. Nothing you can now do is going to prevent the impact that's about to happen. And thus everything – and, and one of the things that happened to me at that moment was I had time to say to myself, lifelong bike rider, never been in a car accident, oh my gosh, I am about to become one of the people who was hit, is, who, who has gotten hit by a car. It's about to happen. I have now entered into the world of car accidents. Joining that club. I'm joining that club. And that feeling has come back to me many, many times. Like, oh, this is happening. Yeah. There's nothing I can do to prevent it. It's all a question of how my life is going to be changed when it's all when I'm lying there in the ground. And it's kind of it's a form of shock, really, because if you if you've spent your life making mountains out of molehills and like you say, an actual mountain falls on you. Yes. Um, 
approaching it the same way you had approached everything else would kill you. Exactly. And so you, you're, it's if, like your if, mind says, okay, we're going to do something I, different. If, if you're somebody who loses sleep because you're worried Ira Glass doesn't like you personally, then you'll die when your kids start telling you they hate you. Yeah. It's just, you, you can't, you, you have to let all of that go. Okay, so it's kind of good news? I mean, as much as it can be good news in the thick of disaster and despair, there is hard-won wisdom, at least. There is some perhaps healthy arranging of priorities where Ira Glass falls well below one's estranged daughters. Of course, seeing a problem isn't the same as solving a problem. And Peter, broken, had to try to put himself back together again. He'd been prescribed antidepressants before the divorce, and after, he tried talk therapy. I, I've gone to some of these people, and this is what happens. I say, let me tell you what happened this week with my kids. Let me tell you what happened when I went to try to pick them up. Let me tell you what happened when they came over. Let me tell you what my ex-wife said. Let me tell you about this. And they're like, oh, my God, really? And I go, yeah. And then this happened. And they go, oh, my God, really? That must be terrible. And I say, yeah, it's pretty bad. And they say, well, our hour is up. And <laughs> So uh, I, maybe, you know, maybe I just saw the wrong people and maybe there's actually somebody out there who in the classic example of, of talk therapy uh, could help me. I'm going to say, yay medication. I honestly believe, and I say this, and I say this in all seriousness, if it weren't for medication, I would be dead. Yeah. I will say that to you now and I will say it to anybody because it was really, really, really hard. And if I had not had the medical technology that allowed me to deal with this with some balance, I would have easily gone over a cliff. And that I know contradicts a little bit what I said about, you know, how real problems focus the mind. Mm -hmm. But I mean, let me put it this way. We've talked about how people like you and me deal with fake problems. Right. If I had dealt with these real problems the same way, no, not, not happening. Yeah. And, uh, and, that, and that happens to other people. And thankfully, it hasn't happened to me. So I'm grateful for medical science. I think that, um, as anybody will tell you, they're not perfect. They're crude instruments. I think it would be better to get by without them. But um, you have to admit that you can't. Peter's friends told him to just wait. Things will settle down. Just wait. So through all this uh, period of being told to wait, you go into work to host Wait, wait. Yes. Don't the tell amusing, me. The amusing, light-hearted, jeep-filled hour. <laughs> Tomfoolery. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, the, what's amazing is it's everywhere, even places it should not be. The, the U.S. Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. had to put out an official request to keep people from wandering into their museum to hunt Pokemons. Mm. Where's their sense of fun? Yeah. Oh, but wait a minute. I can get in here and capture the elusive Pikachu. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. Too soon, Peter. <laughs> Too soon. I've had my colleagues every now and then say, how are you, going? How are you doing this? And um, it's funny because the person who asked me about it happened to be um, a, a, a neurologist or rather a neuroscientist. He's not a doctor. And I said to him, well, you know, the funny thing is, it's like, I really can't do it. I can't be cheerful every week and do amusing stuff, but I kind of have to. It's my job. And uh, these lawyers are expensive. 
So I couldn't quite quit my job or walk away from my job. I had to do my job. So doing my job requires me to be cheerful and funny and on it and witty and the, the, the positive presence. But um, there is the old phrase, fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when I told this story, I said, you know, I, I did the show because I had to do the show. So I just put myself in the mind to do the show and put stuff aside and just did the show and did my work for now three and a half years since this began. Um, he said, it's interesting you say that because there have been studies about how people dwell with, with trauma, um, grief. And there are people who dwell. They journal. They talk about it. They do podcasts about it. Um, they obsess about it. They pick at it. How did this happen? Why did this happen? You know, how could I prevent it from happening? How can I prevent it from happening again? Uh, here's my book about it. And that's kind of encouraged, right? You know, we want people to, to process to it. Process. Yeah. And then there are distractors. People say, I'm going to ignore this and go do that. Mm. And it turns out that the distractors, the people who choose distraction, which I kind of had to do, have better outcomes, said mm. my neurologist friend, neuroscientist friend. Sorry, Dan. Neuroscientist friend. Dan is Daniel Levitin, renowned neuroscientist and author of, among other bestsellers, This Is Your Brain on Music. I called him up to find out more about these distractions. I mean, is it really as simple as keep busy? Distractors do a lot better. Uh, rumination can impair your thinking and problem solving, and distracting tends to put you in a better mood. It seemed, in my experience, when I've had something horrible happen and I distract myself, it's still just as horrible when I come back to it. I mean, isn't that just putting off dealing with it? Well, no, because um, the problem is that ruminators often cut themselves off from other people, and so they become an echo chamber for their own negative thoughts. Um, and they're not forced to deal with the cognitive complexity of interacting with others. So, you know, in a number of studies, the distractors do better. And yes, over time, it t- can take some time. Uh, over time, they end up feeling better. And the wound may still really hurt when you stop and think about it, but not as much as if you were just sitting in a cold room by yourself in the dark, ruminating. Go out and host a quiz show if possible. Uh, Well, exactly. Uh, You know, there was, Nolan Huxima did this interesting study after the 1989 San Francisco earthquake. Um, A a lot of the ruminators showed symptoms of depression and post-traumatic stress disorder, and the distractors did not. Uh, You know, they got on with their lives, and yeah, a lot of people were devastated. Uh, They lost their homes or they lost um, productivity and and belongings, but, you know, the distractors were the ones who were better off. Um, So when we talk about distractions, uh, what are are the effective distractions that that the brain works well with? Well, hosting an NPR quiz show uh, or, uh, you know, getting into your work, uh, social activities with friends, going to concerts or uh, athletic activity, oxygenating the blood. But there's a counterintuitive part to all of this, which is that sad music actually can help you feel better um, if you distract yourself with it. And the reason is that when we're feeling uh, unhappy and, and depressed, we often feel misunderstood. And the last thing you want is to listen to some rousing, happy music, because that's just yet another person who doesn't understand how you're feeling. 
you put on the right sad music and you go, ah, yes, that, that musician understands me. I'm no longer sitting alone at the edge of the cliff looking over the abyss, but there's somebody next to me, somebody who's been through this and who turned their, their experience into a beautiful work of art. And I'm not a monster and I'm not, uh, I'm not going to die alone sad. Like, I mean, that's what depression does. It, it makes you feel like you're the only one going through this. It does. And that's why, um, you know, you know, there's a, a great tradition of support groups or um, group counseling or, you know, just getting together with people who have been through a similar situation. That can be depressing, but it can also be somewhat uplifting as you realize that there are some strong, brave people out there who are coping with it. So ideally, get out with friends to a blues club. There you go. Yeah. All right. Take two Joni Mitchells and call me in the morning. <laughs> So, according to Peter Sagal, a very painful separation from his wife and children jolted him into the ability to see his misery more clearly. Didn't make it easier, just lined up his priorities. And he was distracting himself, which turns out is a good thing, says the neuroscientist. He had also found a medication and dosage that were working out well for him. He had meds, perspective, distractions. He was trying to find the right mix of treatments to make it through the day. And a lot of people with depression do that. They try everything they can think of, talk therapy, non-Western medicinal treatments, exercise, yoga, mindfulness, prayer, could go on and on. But Peter tried another form of treatment that I had never really heard of before. The NBC situation comedy Parks and Recreation. It's not on anymore, but you can find it on Netflix. It's all about a group of city employees and their friendships and struggles in a small Indiana town. There's something about Parks and Recreation, because obviously they had schemes. Mm -hmm. The schemes didn't work. Yes. But for some reason, that show, able to, more so than any other sitcom I've ever watched, showed good people who were healthy managing to get through their day with success. And in a way that never seemed maudlin or false to me, which as a cynical dark person, it almost always does. Mm -hmm. You know, I never bought the big aww moments at the end of sitcom episodes because like, no. And and what they were able to do over the course of the seasons, and I've, I have I, I haven't quite finished it. I'm parsing out the last like four episodes. Oh, it's like, you know, my, my, my last stash yeah. um, is they were able to understand that with the basic of the basis of this show was that these characters all loved each other. Mm -hmm. in, in a way that, that, again, and I don't know how they did this, did not seem saccharine. Yeah. It seemed justified. And, they, and it's almost as if they made sure that the affection for the characters that they expressed was justified by what you saw in the characters. Yeah. And I found that vision of these people to be really encouraging. When well, Leslie Nope got elected to city council, I cried. <laughs> I am willing to admit this. The recount's over. They just called the race. Oh, God. It's still 21 votes. But you won. You won, Leslie. You won by 21 votes. It's confirmed. It's over. You won. That was really sneaky, <laughs> Anne. No, I couldn't resist. But entertainment can cut both ways because it does invite comparisons to life. And in life, there are no neat story arcs and problems rarely get solved in half an hour. 
On Scooby-Doo, they pull the mask off the crooked amusement park operator and he gets thrown in jail. In real life, crooked amusement park operators keep their masks on and just make everything terrible forever for everybody. They get away with it because there are no meddling teenagers or large talking dogs, I suppose. Peter says entertainment can cut both ways. And for him, it could be just as destructive as it is therapeutic. If you look at uh, popular entertainment, what's the what, what's like the one big motivating thing that usually makes heroes out of people? You have a character who's ne- never much to anything, but then somebody threatens his family, right? Yeah. Somebody, somebody. Maybe it's an action movie where the children are kidnapped, like Taken. Taken. You know, yeah. Taken is like the most amazing divorced dad fantasy ever made. <laughs> Like, divorced dads all over the world masturbate to that movie, okay? Because the daughter doesn't like him. He can't do anything for her. But then she's kidnapped. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Uh, you know, you watch these movies, and, and, and that's what's, what you're supposed to do. Yeah. When your children are taken away from you, you're supposed to fight and be heroic and, and defeat the forces of evil that the Albanian sex slavers who took them away from you. What if you can't? Yeah. What if they don't want to be rescued? What if the various things you've tried and... People listening to this might say, well, Peter, did you try that? And believe me, whatever it is you're suggesting, I did. What if none of them try? None of the things you try actually work. Then where are you? So then how do you, how do you deal with running into something like that without, without being destroyed? Well, I, it gets back to the same. You know, basically, it's like, you know, how do I, I just get up and go through my day? So at this point, I'd been sitting with Peter for a while. We had talked about his childhood, his career, his marriage, his divorce, meds, therapy, therapeutic television shows, upsetting archetypes in movies. And through it all, there was one question that I just couldn't figure out. Why come forward about being a depressive person now? Well, that's a good question. Why did you want to do this? Because um, it is really, 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 really hard to go through this shit alone. And one of the worst things about it is has for reasons of shame, for reasons of the rarity of what I'm going through, it's called parental alienation. You can look it up. I have felt very, very isolated. And more than anything, I have wished for someone somehow to meet someone who had been through the same thing and had been struggling with it, not to give me advice. I could use some advice if anybody has any, but also to let me know that this is not because it feels like this this bizarre, unique catastrophe. It f- I, I feel like some guy who's being constantly, you know, struck by lightning, standing in the middle of the road. That's like, what the hell is that? And so, my guess is that there are other people out there. I know there are other people out there who are going through this, and are dealing with the same things that I'm dealing with. Um, not just depression, but the destruction of a family and the way that my family was destroyed. And I want them to know that they are at least not unique. They may feel alone, and I don't know if I can help them with this podcast, but I can tell them that they're not unique, and that is really a comfort. And to the extent that that applies to a lot of other people like me, high-functioning depressives, people who do a lot, succeed a lot, have what seems to be success by most measures, and yet go home and don't feel that way, well, you're not unique either. And I want you to know 
I want you to know that. And what happens then is, I think, up to you. But you're not alone in that. Thanks, Peter Sagal. My pleasure, John Moe. Peter Sagal, host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR quiz show heard on public radio stations around the country, speaking with me at the studios of WBEZ in Chicago. Thanks for listening to episode one of The Hilarious World of Depression. Coming up on episode two, one of the funniest humans ever, Maria Bamford, tells us about the art direction of her inpatient treatment. Okay, we need, let's break two more chairs. Let's take eight pieces out of every puzzle. I want to have a big screen TV blaring at the loudest level, ultimate fighting, <laughs> lose the remote, no one can find it. Then in the back, let's have 40 extras waiting in line in little nightgowns um, for one single package of Grand Crackers. The Hilarious World of Depression is a production of American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Corey Schreppel is technical director. We get help from Kate Moose and Jonathan Blakely. Thanks also to the staff at WBEZ in Chicago. Our theme song, Pagliacci, was created for us and performed by our good friend Rhett Miller. Listen to all of his music that you can because it is great. RhettMiller.com If you need immediate help, confidential help is available for free. Call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. That's a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illness. MakeItOK.org has information to check out for yourself or for someone else. Starting a conversation about mental illness can be awkward. Make It OK has tips on what to say, what not to say. And it has stories of hope from people who have been there. So visit MakeItOK.org. You can take the pledge to make it okay. I'm John Moe. Bye now. Would you say I'm a hopeless case? Say it ain't so. Would you say I'm a sad clown? Tell me something I don't know. Would you say I'm a sad clown? Tell me something I don't know. 